everyone and welcome to another Scots Way podcast and on this podcast it sees the return of Peter Ross. Hello Peter. Hello there, thanks for having me. And uh, the last time we spoke to you was three years ago, I think it was the spring of 2014 right. and it was when uh, Donderlust Dispatches from Unreported Scotland came out and now we're going to talk about the follow-up, The Passion of Harry Bingo. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those three years it's fair to say Scotland has changed quite a bit. Yeah. Um, do you think, did, did that have an effect on on Harry Bingo, the book, that is? Um, it's, it's difficult to say. Uh, I, I'm sure it must have had a certain effect. It's difficult to kind of quantify that or mm. explain exactly what it was. But certainly um, the first book, Dondralust, um, which was you know a, a collection of journalism, was published, um, I think, just um, ahead of the Scottish independence referendum. Yeah. yeah. And it sort of, I think, somehow tapped into some of that, that kind of slightly wild energy that was yeah. around. With, I mean, the book, I should say, didn't take any particular position on Scottish yeah. independence, um, but I think it maybe tapped into the idea of a certain independence, independence of spirit in yeah. Scots generally, you know, not a political... No, thing, no, but, I, absolutely. But a, a sort of feeling to do with, uh, you know, the idea that, that kind of character was a, was a kind of great natural resource in Scotland. Um, you know, it's Scotland's character rather than it's Scotland's oil, and that was something that I wanted to kind of tap into, I think, with that book. With this one, I think it probably emerges from um, a feeling, a slightly kind of hungover, listless, <laughs> boo- booze-blues kind of feeling. Yeah. That's uh, in Scotland generally... That isn't really necessarily to do with um, a, a feeling that I have of sadness that the that the the kind of um, the no side won or anything. Because mm-hmm. I've never taken a a particular because I'm a reporter. Yes. I've never taken a particular stance on the independence question. Yeah. But I think what I felt um, immediately after the referendum, the day after it, um, was a feeling of kind of a bit of emptiness and anticlimax. And some kind of melancholy that was abroad in the country, generally, maybe I'm sure a lot of people were jubilant, but I think there was a, a widespread feeling, regardless of, of how you voted, of, of kind of sadness perhaps, or just something that the tide had gone out or something. Yeah. Um, and I think probably some of that feeling has continued within the country as, it, as it's continued. Obviously, the independence question isn't settled, sure. and I think there's still quite a a kind of uh, a slight, there's a slight feeling of ennui in the air, and I think maybe some of that is in this book, which you know I hopefully haven't made it sound like too much of a downer. <laughs> I, I hope it's, no. uh, I hope it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's hopefully funny in, in the same way as as Dondralist was, but I think there is also maybe an underlying, an undertow of. Of, of melancholy in it as well. It's interesting because both books are made up of um, a pieces of journalism and essays that you'd written at different times. Mm-hmm. And some of these, um, am I right, predate Donderlust as well? Yeah, yeah. So the chronology isn't totally... It's not as, it's not as clear as, you know, this comes immediately after Donderlust. Some, yeah. some of the pieces are very new mm-hmm. and some of them are really quite old. But I think you're right. There is a feeling of... Um, it's more reflective, I think, as a, as a book than perhaps Donderlust. And I think um, that you had these individuals in Donderlust that there was a sense of, look what this 
this or it's possible in this small country all these different things that you may or may not have known about exist and there is still that in The Passion of Harry Bingo but there is also um, more tales of regrets the wrong word but there are, are more as I say more reflective stories yeah. in I think it's probably more to do with me that than it is to do with the people mm-hmm. I think it's probably more to do with the telling than it is with the tale you know right. I think um, I think the people in this book are still the same kind of uh, characterful colourful kind of doughty individuals mm-hmm. that were in the, in the first story but I think there's maybe just something in the way that they're written up um, that has a, a greater sense of weariness of spirit um, than was in the first book and I think that's probably just maybe to do with me maybe I'm slightly I'm certainly older um, uh, by three years <laughs> since that first book and I just think maybe I'm a wee bit um, just a little bit more sad as well I think in my own life and um, I think the world is yeah. and I think that's probably what's going into the stories it's not to do with the people it's more just to do with some some to do with the kind of the rhythm of the sentences and the word choice and that kind of cellular level, I think, is probably what's happened with this book. Yeah, so it's not. It is the substance, and it is the way that, that you know it's it's written as yeah, well. Yeah, I think so. Before we leave, though, the first um, the idea of the referendum and what happened. The first chapter is called after the referendum. Yeah. Um. So why put this at the front of the book? Um. And tell us a bit about it, if you want. Well, yeah. So after the referendum is a piece. Um. It was a. It's a story that I was commissioned to write. Um by Scotland on Sunday. Um, I did a series of um, pieces about, in the lead up to the independence referendum for Scotland on Sunday, where I travelled around Scotland sort of speaking to different groups, asking them how they kind of felt about the um, independence questions. So I would speak to, I'd go to a particular part of Scotland and speak to older people, or I would be in a different part of Scotland and speak to, uh, you know, women or, or kind of younger people and or, or people I tried to speak to that idea of the missing million those people who had not voted before because mm-hmm. they felt completely disenfranchised people probably living in poverty um, and that they just had never thought to vote for because they thought it would never make any difference to their lives no matter who was in government yeah. this time they felt differently and they'd register to vote and they were likely to vote yes and I went to speak to those people in Dundee so the final piece in that series was I was dispatched on the day after the referendum and actually the evening of the vote being counted um, to write about the, the yes side, so the people that were specifically the yes voters. Yeah. Um, a, a, a friend and colleague of mine, Danny Garavelli, uh, covered the no voters, so it was very even-handed in the mm-hmm. paper, even though it doesn't appear so in the, in the story. <laughs> um, so I basically spent the, the evening um, of the count at Our Dynamic Earth, the Science Centre in Edinburgh, right. which was meant to be the scene of the Yes campaign's victory party. Mm-hmm. So um, all the kind of the kind of you know the, the glitterati of the independence campaign were there, you know, yeah, you know Brian yeah. Cox and Irvin Welsh and Martin Compson, as well as um, you know ordinary and inverted commas activists and and so on. So people there watched as the as the votes came in. And if you remember, um, Clotmanshire, uh, the vote from Clotmanshire came in first. And because I think it was expected that yes, we'd win Clotmanshire, and in fact they didn't, mm-hmm. immediately there was a kind of pall um, over the evening. And it just got, it went from you know bad to worse yeah. as far as that went. Um, so I was there all night. And then the following day, I spent the day um, in, in George Square, which obviously had been a kind of um, you know that was the sort of in Freedom Square they called it yes, didn't they? Yeah. You know, that was the, the sort of 
the sort of cultural centre of, of, of the Yes campaign in a way, and there were big rallies there. So I spent the day talking to people um, in, in, in George Square, went there directly from our dynamic earth in the morning. Um, spent the whole day there, and then in the evening I was there for the, you know, what you might call a sort of semi-riot between yeah. um, people on opposite sides of the campaign, although in fact it wasn't ordinary activists on either side that were involved in that. It was, I think, you know, it was very much, you know, loyalists on one side, and then the people that were kind of throwing stones on the other side were were more like kind of, you know, troublemakers generally, yes, I think. Yeah, so I, yeah. I think it was a proxy war, really, that... But it was there was trouble. There was mounted police. There was there was you know things were on fire. Yeah, it was it was it was nasty. So that piece, the, the opening piece of the book after the referendum, covers that whole time from the previous evening, then into Alex Salmond um, conceding defeat. Yeah, um, and then into um, George Square throughout the day and the sort of sadness there, and then the kind of anger um, that swelled up in the evening. And I decided to include it as the first story in the, in the book, really, because it was just a way of making a break, I think, from Dondrelas. It was a way of saying, you know, Dondrelas led up to this particular moment yeah. in Scotland, and here is, to an extent, the aftermath. Um, obviously, as we've discussed, it isn't quite as straightforward as that, and some of the stories predate the referendum, but I wanted it to feel like a bit of a break. And also, I just thought it'd be interesting to start with a piece that was a bit more about politics, because I think people probably don't really expect that from me so much yeah so i thought it'd be an interesting way to 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 start with with just what is obviously the kind of the central event in the life of scotland Mm. you know over the last um over our lifetimes really yeah and i think um it made sense to me because it was like well here is the event that has shaped um scotland in the last three years and now i'm going to give you more of of the unreported scotland and and uh, and there is a feeling i think of a much more um, fractured country, if for want of a better word, in some of the, the, the stories. I'm thinking of things like um, looking at small towns, mm. um, in Praise of Small Towns is one, is one of the chapters, and while it is in Praise of Small Towns, there is this underlying sense that um, industry that kept these towns going is now either gone or going mm-hmm. and that um, it's difficult to keep a lot of the traditions that were rooted in the small towns going. Yeah. Um, so did you choose things like that with a sense that um, Scotland had changed or was it just, did you say, yourself that you think that you'd looked at? Well, um, I mean, I chose the stories largely based on whether they were good enough to go in the book, really, yeah. because I, I didn't want to have this be the rubbish sequel to Don Dallas, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, it was only really not long before the book went to print that a decision was made about whether there was going to be a book or not, because right. for a long time I sort of wasn't keen on having a, a second collection, because okay. I, didn't, I didn't want it to be, as I say, a kind of a, a, a pale shadow, a kind mm-hmm. of poor follow-up. But at a certain point, I became confident that I had enough um, good material, and I decided, once I had the title story, really, that, that this was a book. But um, in terms of a sort of deeper idea behind the kind of selection of the stories, I think there is always a kind of question or an idea about identity and a lot of the stuff that mm-hmm. I write. And certainly as regards um, the, the piece you mentioned in Praise of Small Towns, and something like uh, Nihil Sina Labore, mm. which is about um, you know heavy industry in, in, in Glasgow and in Govan in particular, I, I'm interested in the idea that 
places have maybe lost their purpose if, if their purpose was previously defined by the work that people did that, yeah. was, that was the kind of binding thing in community what does what is governed for mm-hmm. if it's not for shipbuilding yeah. um, although clearly it's, it still is because there are still yards there yes. but in terms of what is that what is that stretch of the quite for you know Glasgow I think still sees itself as a kind of heavy industry as, as a place that makes things yeah is that still true you know so I, I, I kind of wanted to explore those ideas yeah. and those pieces and, and you know I think these are stories of resilience really in as much as in Praise of Small Towns does find within the kind of character of the people and the humour of the people and the language and how they occupy themselves a great deal of hope but mm-hmm. I think in terms of just sheer brute economics mm-hmm. um, there is a, a real question mark hanging over places like you know like like Arbroath or, or Forfar or, or, or you know, parts of Glasgow for sure yeah so um, I think I I'm seeing I'm seeing both sides of it, you know, both sides of the moon, you know, the dark side of the moon, yeah. and the light side um, in these stories. I I think Glasgow's relationship with the Clyde is interesting. Um, a lot of people who come from Newcastle or Liverpool or, or London, even where there's big rivers, and uh, and there's been redevelopment of the river, and they say, well, why hasn't Glasgow done the same? I think it's either it's almost too painful to do. Or there's still some kind of loose lingering sense that oh, but the ships might come back or something mm. might come back. Um, it does, and probably the reason again is economic, and there's just been a lack of money. But whenever there's been an attempt to um, do something Clydeside, it's never really taken off. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got these little disparate pockets of yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a real sadness for me because I I think that river is just a tremendous um, a tremendous th- thing. In the kind of heart of the city, I mean, and also historically important, you know, this idea that the Clyde made Glasgow and Glasgow made the Clyde, you know, um, but it has become more of a, a kind of barrier than a than a than a, a living presence in the city. And if there was a, I mean, if you ever, you know, a, hardly anyone I think really gets onto the Clyde and sees the city from the perspective yeah. of the river, and it looks amazing. It Glasgow does. looks amazing from the river, you know. Yeah. And I really urge people to try to take every opportunity to, to see the river from that point of view. It's an amazing view, definitely. Uh-huh. Um, and I'd love for... You know, I think there was there was some talk recently about, you know, some kind of water taxi to kind of bring people from Glasgow Airport into the city mm-hmm. centre. And, you know, all, all that thing has to have all its logistics worked out and be costed and, and so on and so forth. But that'd be an amazing way to arrive in Glasgow, wouldn't <laughs> it? An incredible way, yeah. You fly into Glasgow from, you know, somewhere and you, you, you arrive along the Clyde. Absolutely terrific. Yeah. Much better than the way it's done just now, you know. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, exactly. Nose to tail, but that's right. Aye. Um, so you mentioned that uh, it felt like a book when you had the central story and the title of the book, yeah. The Passion of Harry Bingo. Um, now, we've already kind of hinted that this is quite a ref- perhaps a more reflective book and there are, there are lots of highs in it, absolutely, but there are also some lows. Mm-hmm. And I guess following a small Scottish football team is the ultimate expression <laughs> of that. And perhaps part of this will be almost the stereotypical one. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Harry Mingo. Well, let me just say, first of all, um, that that story was written um, initially for, um, for, for Nutmeg magazine, which is mm-hmm. the um, Scottish football kind of periodical. Which has lately started up, and it specialises in, in letting writers write at, at length about football. 
Um, so I don't know really anything about football, um, and I, I've always kind of felt that to be a bit of a, a kind of lack in me as a sort of Scottish male. Yeah. And so I wanted to find out if there was a way of um, learning to love the game, not just I mean, because I like it, I do like yeah. it. And I like listen to off the ball and all that stuff quite religiously. But what I like about it is the soap opera of it mm-hmm. and the humour and all that. But I don't actually really care about the game yeah. itself. And so I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll try to um, see if I can find various kind of gurus who can initiate initiate me into the ways of into the ways of football. And so um, the, the 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 first person who I, f- I found to do that was a gentleman called uh, Henry Calderhead. Right. Um, who's better known as Harry Bingo. Um, and I'd actually met him um, a number of years ago um, when I did the story about the bingo in Partick. I'd spent a day in the bingo hall in Partick in Dumbarton Road and I'd been introduced to this man. And he was already in his 90s by that point. Um, and, I, and he told me that he basically goes to the bingo every day apart from when he goes to see Partick Thistle play. So I, when I was thinking about, well, who can I encounter to kind of teach me about football? I thought, well, what about that old man? I wonder if he's still on the go. Um, and luckily, through Twitter and his granddaughter, and Heather, <laughs> uh, she was able to put me in touch with him. So I went to see um, uh, the first game of that season um, with, with him and his family. Um, Partick Thistle versus, I think it was versus, was it versus Cali Thistle? I think it was Inverness Cali Thistle. Right. Um, the fake Jags, as, as Heather <laughs> calls them. And uh, what interested me about him was that he'd been to see them play and he's 97 now, maybe, mm-hmm. he's maybe 98 now actually, but 97 at the time of writing. And he'd been to, been going to see part of Thistle play since the end of the Second World War. And I just think... Yeah, that's once, incredible. Once you can... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's being a fan and then there's devoting your whole life to something. Mm-hmm. And I think once you kind of get to that point, it becomes about something much deeper than about football. And I'm not quite sure exactly what that is, but... Yeah. It's, so the, the, the passion of Harry Bingo... It was that idea, that, that sort of older meaning of passion uh, to do with endurance and kind of suffering, you know, the passion of the Christ, you know, that mm-hmm. idea. Um, so I wanted to really explore that in the story. And there's, there's three parts to that story. Um, there's the, the, the passion of Harry Bingo part, which sort of introduces the idea. And then there's a, um, there's a sort of final piece, um, which is about the... Uh, the, the, the terrible um, Rangers bus crash um, yeah. which uh, took the life of, of a young man called Ryan Baird um, I went to his memorial service and spoke to um, fellow kind of Rangers supporters as the sort of concluding part of that, mm-hmm. that book and then the middle part of it which was, is the comic part really is when I went um, on the supporters bus um, up to uh, Peterhead from Hamden yeah. with the Queen's Park um, support and I was interested in them because they're an interesting club, you know, because they're an amateur team and they're the oldest team in Scotland. And I think their their supporters are quite eccentric in some ways. Well, they play at the national stadium, yeah. which is bonkers in the first place. So yeah, so uh, I I should say that um, they're all very different people, but um, there was a very when, it, when we went up on the bus up to um, up to Peterhead, which is a very boozy bus, I should yeah. say. Um, there was a, a very touching moment of solidarity when we went past. Um, Donald Trump's golf course up in Aberdeenshire, <laughs> and everybody kind of rushed over to the right hand side of the bus to give the tongs to the to the golf course. So I wrote that, of course, into the into the piece because um, I, I thought it was quite funny. Um, but then I had to do a different version of it for uh, the Guardian because the Guardian wanted to, to reproduce the story. Right. So I thought, well, the Guardian readers are not going to know 
what the tongs is. So I changed it uh, to the fingers. Yeah. And it, but when it came out in print, it had been changed again to the finger, which I thought was, you know, <laughs> not only something that Trump can understand. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like totally fake news. It was not, <laughs> not not only uh, you know numerically inaccurate, but but not not quite as funny. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. it's quite sad yeah. to see that happen. Um, it's an interesting take on, um, as you said, maybe identity. I think if someone has been doing anything for the length of time that Harry Bingo has been following Patrick Thistle, yep. then it's, I mean, it's maybe linked into what you, something you mentioned earlier on about people voting for the first time because they've previously felt their vote didn't count, so they're perhaps their voice didn't count. I often think with football, here's a chance for any tribal thing to be part of something and to, mm-hmm. to you know to, to still be an individual and as you say the characters on the, the bus are absolutely individuals yeah. right? there's a shared love of ska music or quite a kind of yeah well I think it's because um, Queen's Park play in black and white and it's like the two-tone thing so I think like a lot of the people that have been going to see them for a long time were into the specials and the beat and the selector back in the yeah. back in the in the sort of early 80s and they've just stayed with it and I think they they play um, "Enjoy Yourself" um, when Queen's Park on those rare occasions when Queen's Park. No, no, no. <laughs> on those many occasions when Queen's Park score goes, they play "Enjoy Yourself," which is only, I think, semi-ironic because it echoes around an almost empty Hamden, you know. But uh, again, this idea that if you've got a team, like I, I'm like you. I mean, my I'm kind of normally a Liverpool fan because when I was younger, I showed an interest in. Kenny Dalglish more than yeah. a team and my parents were just so glad it wasn't Rangers Celtic yeah. that they just threw mugs and all sorts of things like that at me. And so I've never really kind of, you know, regularly gone and stood on terraces and, you know, wind and rain and home and away and all that stuff. But I've got such admiration for people that that becomes, you know, mm-hmm. as I say, a complete part of their identity. You say, well, first of all, I am, you know, a Partick Thistle fan. I am father grandfather, all of those things, but that is in the mix, which is something I would, someone asked me, you know, define yourself, I would never kind of really use yeah. that as one of them. Well, and I think arguably it's become more important, you know, as, as we were talking about, you know, the decline of traditional industries, you know, the, the breakup of the nuclear family, you know, um, people uh, no longer being as um, regular attendees at church, you know, organised religion, all these kind of traditional signifiers of identity have, have kind of dwindled. But football remains, and I think that's perhaps why it's become, it's for some people, even more intense than it, than it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always fascinated that you managed to gain access to people and places and, and events that other people might find difficult to get across. I mean, quite a wide range of things. Like you, you're on a grouse shoot, you make it to the drag queen ball, there is the sex shop that you yeah. manage to go behind the scenes, there's the, the wall of death, you even spend time with the naked rambler. I mean, do you just kind of say, can I... Can I come in? And they say yes. And it's an interesting... It is a bit like that, I think. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, partly... I mean, sometimes it's to do with reputation I think so like if you've done it for a long time and if, if people know your work or if you can maybe show them your work then they might decide to take a punt on you and trust you but I think that's increasingly more difficult um, as people are increasingly suspicious of yeah. um, the press for various reasons um, and I think that's actually something that's, that's become um, more difficult since the independence referendum. I noticed that. Mm-hmm. On the, I noticed that in the run up to the independence referendum, people have been very, very suspicious of 
of, of, of journalists, you know. Yeah. And there's definitely a kind of much more widespread belief than there used to be that journalists are going to lie about you, you know, if I can be as blunt as that. Um, but I find that what does help is just the fact that, and this is something that I think I've come to understand about it, is that if you kind of go into it without any agenda or without any kind of side at all, um, if you go into it in a kind of good-hearted mm-hmm. kind of way, um, with nothing but the best intentions, then I think people understand that they just pick up on it and sense it um, in some kind of in some kind of psychic way. Right. Um, just like we all have feelings yeah. about people when we meet yeah, them, sure. don't we? Um, and so I think people probably just hope they just get a feeling that I'm not going to do them over mm-hmm. um, and that I'm approaching them respectfully um, and I mean that which doesn't mean that you know it's going to be a really sappy soft focus kind of piece Yeah. but it just means that there, there's no underlying agenda to kind of make them look foolish or to twist what they said and I think people somehow just know that is going to be what happens and that that's that's a big help for me I mean, that's something I wanted to ask do people when they, they say um, of course you can spend some time with us and try and sell you their version of the story or are you allowed to spend the time to kind of make your own mind up? I'm thinking about the two I'm thinking about actually maybe the yeah. two extremes would be a grouse shoot and the sex shop mm-hmm. both of whom have for various reasons um, dodgy reputations yeah. put it that way and I could see that they're going to you know both of them might say well actually we can get our side of the story over here mm-hmm. um, I think uh, well with the sex shop in particular I spent some time ahead of that story meeting with the guys that, that own that place and sort of explaining to them what I wanted to do and then they had a bit of a think about it and decided right, to okay. allow me to come along and, and spend the day there and uh, so they decided to they decided to trust me, and then when they made that decision, it all went fine. Yeah. But there was just a little bit of preparatory work needed to be done yeah. there. Because what I thought about that one was, it's not just them; it's the customers that obviously there's a real trust thing going on between them and their customers. Yeah. And then suddenly they say, "Who's that taking notes in the corner?" Yeah. You yeah. know. Um, well, with that, with that. I didn't just randomly approach um, customers mm-hmm. like I normally would do, just randomly approach people in a story. I was a little bit guided by who they thought might be willing to speak to me yeah, in those okay. circumstances. Because obviously it's sensitive. there's a kind of sensitivity around their business there, isn't there? Yeah. You know? um, yeah. But generally speaking, I think it also helps that I'm spending a lot of time on the stories, or a relatively long time compared to a normal newspaper report. Um, so just spending a whole day in somebody's company, mm. you know, they will, or more than a day, you know, they will just loosen up. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. Gator Lee's called it the art of hanging out. Yeah. And I think it's just, it, it, that's just, if you just spend enough time just hanging around people yeah. and not making a nuisance to yourself um, and just watching and listening, listening. carefully, carefully the, more than speaking, then, um, yeah. then you get a lot of stuff. And uh, the grouse shoot, I mean, how, how was that? Because that, again, was people that maybe didn't want to... Well, I think the guy that, that, that owns that grouse moor, a gentleman called Nick Harvey Miller, um, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think I just kind of explained to him what I wanted to do, and I think he just said, they'll come along, you know. I think he, I think it, I think I probably, uh, 
I think I may have taken advice in that case from um, the Gamekeepers Association or something like that on who might be a good person to approach. Um, so what you want really is someone who just doesn't care that much, who's quite willing to just say, oh, whatever, come along, what the hell, you know. And, and I think people that own gross mirrors are sometimes a bit like that because yeah. I think it's a bit of a money loser a lot of the time. It's a bit of a status symbol. It's something that you, you have because you like to have your friends to come and shoot on it. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, I don't. I think a lot of the time they're not really running them as businesses. Yeah. It's a bit of a, a, a kind of indulgence and a play thing for them. Um, so he was quite happy to have me come along and then he introduced me to uh, you know some of the kind of um, the people that were shooting that day and you know some of them were more approachable than others and I think I spoke to beaters and, and keepers you know so the whole wide range is fascinating kind of subculture mm-hmm. and I, I, I had I had experience of it because I'd done gross beating um, as a teenager oh really yeah okay. uh, so I, I'd had sort of the experience of being you know, accidentally shot at and all that kind of thing. <laughs> um, oh, it's one of the hardest jobs I've ever done, honestly. Hardest job in the world. Uh, really, really <laughs> difficult. Not pleasant. Yeah, I bet. Walking over those hills for like, you know, you know, 15 miles a day or something in the rain, chucked into the back of a uh, jeep with, you know, 10 other beaters and a couple of randy spaniels. It's not <laughs> it's not MD's idea of a, a good time, really. Well, maybe some people's idea of a good time. <laughs> it wasn't really mine. <laughs> I might have just defined someone's fantasy there. <laughs> yeah, we could have combined the sex shop and the ground. Um, I mean, there are, again, just like his in Dondolos, there's some wonderfully odd yeah. uh, characters, and I mean that in the most kind of uh, positive way. You did manage to spend some time with the uh, the Naked Rambler, mm. um, who is a, I mean, obviously a complex character, but I think what um, your piece with him did, it got past the the stereotype of a, you know, eccentric just getting his gear off for no other reason than he wanted to and, and kind of looked at the kind of reasons behind it. And I didn't realise, I think this is right, that it was only in Scotland that he was getting arrested. Is that correct? Well, what had happened was he... Um, because it, it, it all kind of stemmed from the fact he was walking from um, Land's End to John O'Groats yeah, yeah. and then back again. And it was just... It was kind of... Um, he he got. I'm trying to remember the exact chronology of this, but he did get arrested in Scotland, and then he had to kind of fly back up to Scotland to stand trial. And while he was on the flight, um, he went into the toilets and came back out naked. And then he got arrested on landing in in Edinburgh, Glasgow, mm-hmm. wherever it was that he landed. So then he ended up having to stand trial in Scotland, and then he kept getting he kept appearing in court um, naked, getting done for contempt of court. And then every time he got released from prison in Scotland, he just kind of walked out the gates of whatever yeah. prison it was naked and got arrested again. So it was a vicious circle. So he was basically yeah. trapped in Scotland. And then and then when I encountered him, um, what had actually happened was he'd been in, he'd latterly been in a Kilmarnock prison. And I wrote to him um, in Kilmarnock prison and said, I'd really like to interview you. None of this is in the story, but it's still kind of preamble to it really. Um, I wrote to him saying I'd really like to interview you. And he wrote back to me to say, yeah, that'd be fine, but I'm actually going to get released um, a couple of days from now. So I wrote back to him and say, okay, fine, I will meet you outside prison and hopefully we can we can talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't know whether he'd got that letter or not because just the timings of it. So I drove, I live in Glasgow, and I drove down um, to Kilmarnock to meet him out of prison um, at 6am 
on the day of his release because I was I understood that was when he was getting out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, it was October. <laughs> it was pitch black in the morning. It was a real storm actually. Right. Um, so it was a horrible drive down mm. uh, to Ayrshire. Um, really dangerous roads and all that, you know. Um, and eventually I got to the prison in good time to meet him coming out. Sat in the car in the car park watching the gate. Uh, six o'clock came, nothing, no sign of him. Six fifteen, still nothing. Six thirty, I thought I better go over and find out um, what's happening here. So I went over to the uh, to the to the prison gates and uh, spoke to the guy in the gate and said I'm meant to be meeting Stephen Goff um, here, and he said Oh no, he's not an inmate here. And I said Oh, what do you mean? He said Oh, he's not he's not he's not a prisoner here. But the guy had a bit of attitude, and I thought maybe he was just trying to get rid of me because right, he was okay. like journalist or whatever. Um, so I eventually I managed to get a hold of the Scottish Prison Service um, once they came in for the day, and they weren't going to tell me anything at first, but I think they took pity on me and they said actually what happened was he got transferred the evening before to Sockton Prison in Edinburgh. All right. So I I, I drove over uh, to Sockton with a photographer, and they said this was by the time we got there it was like half past nine, ten o'clock in the morning. And they said, yes, he did get released from here at six o'clock this morning. <laughs> but he didn't have any clothes on. So, you know, on the one hand, he had a four-hour head start on us. But on yeah. the other hand, he was naked. So we thought there was quite a good chance we'd be able to find them. Yeah. So we spent the next, the whole of the day, driving around up into the Pentlands, looking for him, asking people, have you seen a naked man? Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> almost, almost down into the border, asking people, we burger vans at the sides of the road, all that. Uh, and then eventually, uh, we were just at the point of giving up, we were actually going back to the office. We were driving through um, the village of Auchindinny, mm-hmm. and he came along, I saw him coming along the opposite side of the, the road, and then pavement, just, he's, he's very tall and he walks really fast because he used to be in the Marines. Right. Uh, so he was just coming along at speed along the pavement, nothing on but the kind of floppy sun hat, the rucksack, the hiking boots. And I just pulled the car over to the other, the other lane, you know, without looking. Crazy. And pulled in and just opened the door and stuck my hand in and shook his hand. And he just kept going, but he said, yeah, come on. So I just had to get out of the car and keep up, and, and keep up with him. And I ended up um, spending the night in his tent with him and then walking with him for part of the next day. And it was it was really exciting, actually, because it felt like um, a proper scoop in some yeah, way. Yeah. It's not the sort of work I normally do. But to actually kind of find him and, and get to spend the night in his tent was, was, was really great. Although I remember it was freezing. And I had to kind of hold my laptop to my body all night inside the sleeping bag just to try and stop it from seizing up, so that I could file the story the next day. But he was he was a, a great person to spend time with and to try to understand, you know. Yeah, and do you think you did understand him? Well, um, I think so. Yeah, I think. Well, I think I understand that he's not crazy. Yeah. Um, and I, I understand that it's not anything to do with sex. No. And he's not. A, he's not a, a naturist. He's he's not an he, exhibitionist. Yeah. He. He's he's trying to make a point about kind of civil liberties, which you know, arguably, he made the point a long time ago, and he's just he was just harming himself by repeat and his family by repeatedly getting arrested in that way and just sticking sticking with his guns uh, so much. But I think I I think I understood him and hopefully kind of treated him sympathetically, but not um, unquestioningly. There's a lot of um, traditions that you look at again in both books actually that uh, 
things that have been happening in areas for a long time and they're still hanging on in there and one I think of is the Herring Queens or actually any kind of crowning of a queen as, as they do in the borders and yeah. in various places like that um, again it doesn't seem to be as the way that I read it it's not so much a dying against the light these things are actually still kind of alive and, and, and uh, important now yeah well I think that those are good examples of, of traditions that are still very strong but which I think are, are, are pretty unreported yeah. I mean you mentioned the borders there I mean those, those kind of common riding festivals and Hoyk and Selkirk and Galashiels those great equestrian spectacles mm-hmm. are things that I have written about um, in Dondolas yeah um, but everyone's written about them. They're widely written about and photographed, and, and, and no wonder. But these other festivals in the in the kind of in kind of lowland Scotland, mm-hmm. um, I think, are a wee bit unremarked, which seems a shame. So the Herring Queen is a is a, a festival in Eyemouth where um, a, a young girl is kind of chosen every year to be the kind of Herring Queen, and she's brought ashore wearing ceremonial robes. You know, and this has been been going on since around the time of the Second World War. Um, in some ways, I think, um, what you might say about that is that you've had a, a situation there where the fishing industry's been in pretty sharp decline. Yeah. Um, but this, which emerged from the fishing industry, persists and, and works as a kind of a badge of pride for the community and as a way of sort of honouring their traditions, even though yeah. the kind of the substance of them, the actual fishing, isn't there to the same extent anymore. But there's other, there's other kind of um, things within that um, chapter um, to do with uh, the amazing Bones Fair, for example, mm-hmm. which I think is wonderful, where, um, again, they have crownings of kind of queens and so forth. But what they do there is the people who are... the children who are elected to these kind of positions of honour, their families build... Um, like fairy tale castles and things like that yeah. in their gardens and these things are monumental so you've got like ordinary kind of council housing or modern estates with you know a gigantic Disney princess castle <laughs> kind of built onto the front of it you know out of wood yeah. and, and they're absolutely spectacular I, I sort of in, in a way feel they must reflect the sort of um, the monumental architecture of Grangemouth or refinery that everyone can kind of see from, yeah. from around there you know it, it feels like there's a bit of that going on um, yeah, or, or or some of the kind of other gala days and fairs, like in in in, in Lanark, or yeah. in Lanamer Day, where they have these incredible kind of floats. You know, they call or they they don't call them floats. They, that word's verboten mm-hmm. in, in Lanark. They call them lorries, Lanamer lorries, where they essentially they are floats. Where they have tractors or lorries, and they they make them up into pageants and mm-hmm. loads of tissue paper. Really spectacular, amazing things. I think they don't get enough attention. Yeah, they're really. It's like it's like a Scottish Mardi Gras or something. Yeah, and, and, yes, it is. Uh, but more buckfast and less <laughs> less rum. Um, and uh, either or in Lilithco, you know the, uh-huh. the kind of marches in Lilithco. Just just oh, the the whole Scottish summer is full of these little spectacles. And I think they. I was I was so glad to be able to spend time uh, writing about them, and hopefully you know, hopefully they will get a bit more attention in the future. Um, I think that's right. I mean, it's a, it's a celebration and, again, a sense of belonging, a sense of doing something as community or group or, 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 or group of, you know, of yeah. fans or anything like that. Everyone you? takes a turn, don't they? You yeah. Know, the kind of, um, whether, you're, whether you're constructing a Disney castle or you're just making the sandwiches for the, for the day, you know, like, blessed are the peacemakers, as yeah, they yeah. say in the piece, you know, it's like, it's a, I think it's a real community event. 
Now, there, there are a few chapters that look um, at more tragic events and how tragedy can shape lives and, and yep. shape communities as well. Yeah. Um, things like the storm um, and the band who gave Glasgow hope. Mm. Um, why did you think to... Uh, well, first of all, maybe say a bit about the storm, because I think it's a story that not many people perhaps know. Yeah, so the storm is the story of um, a tremendous um, tragedy that took place um, in the in the US um, in January of 2005, when there was a, a great storm across the whole of Britain and a lot of damage everywhere, but they were particularly badly hit in those islands. Um, and five members of the, 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 the one family were very uh, sadly killed all at once when their two cars were swept off of the road. So this was a, you know, a, a three generations of a family, really. And it, obviously when something like that happens in a, a very close-knit, um, small community, it really hits the place hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember it very vividly at the time. Um, and I remember, you know, there was a lot of kind of attempts by the media to go up there and kind of um, get the story of the family, and the family didn't um, ever really speak about it. You know, that was their decision not to really make their private grief yeah. public. Um, but what happened was, um, I, I, I sort of, I got to know one of the, one of the members of the family. Uh, Marianne, and uh, she eventually she she got in touch with me to ask me whether I would be interested in in speaking to her and speaking to other members of the family about what had happened really for the first time because they were hoping to get a, a fatal accident inquiry uh, into the circumstances um, of those deaths um, and what might have been done to prevent it and so that was really what led me to to kind of go to to the US. Mm-hmm. And spend time there talking to 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 that family really. So that's uh, a story that I really wanted to try to. It was a very very difficult story to write mm-hmm. because it's quite technically complicated to do with causeways and there's a lot of kind of technical information in sure. there. And also, it's very raw for people, and you want to make sure that you get all the facts right in a situation like that. But also, you kind of you just careful of people's feelings sure. and, and it's so important when something has gone so badly wrong in their lives that you at least get the story right so that was, that was what I was trying to do with that one really um, and the, the band who gave Glasgow hope yeah. and kind of, no, it, it was based around Esperanza who um, were playing the night of the Clutha Vaults bar uh, disaster and I mean really the hope that managed to kind of you know, come out of that terrible yeah. event. Well, it's called that because Esperanza means hope. It's a Spanish word yeah. for hope, um, and that they're a they're a ska band that that um, were playing in the Clutha when the helicopter crashed mm. into it, um, and a although they were uh, all physically unharmed, I believe um, one of their fans was was killed in that accident and um, there was a lot of their fans were in the the pub that night and I really I I didn't um, write about um, the Clutha uh, at the time I didn't I wasn't part of the kind of reporting of that Mm -hmm. event Um, but I was really uh, interested and moved by the idea that there was a kind of band playing at that time and I saw like everyone I saw the kind of um, uh, 
the 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 t shirt that had been put down with the little scar thing on it saying something like I can't remember the exact words just now I'm sorry but it says something like um, to my friends one day we'll dance again so this idea of you know a, a, a musical community trying to uh, recover together from this awful thing that had happened to them was 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 interesting to me so I I did approach them and and ask them whether they would be willing to speak to me. Um, and, and that took a little bit of um, uh, discussion and negotiation yeah. before because there's a lot of people in the band and everyone had to agree sure um, um, and I just uh, yeah I hope I, I hope I managed to do that that justice really because um, again it's such a terribly painful thing mm-hmm. and such an easy thing to kind of get wrong in the reporting of it I think they were happy with it and I hope they still are what I took from that story again goes back to uh, something that runs through the book is this idea of whether it's music whether it's um, you know the gala days or whether it's you know football as you say the, the, the Rangers tragedy uh, uh, that you looked at that it, it allows people to to grieve together and there's yeah. a real kind of important um, aspect to that you know that people are not alone and the kind of redemptive nature of Esperanza then playing Later on, mm-hmm. and, and members of the family and the audience and things like that, uh, yeah, kind of really sum that up, I think. Yeah, well, they they allowed me to go to the um, they had a kind of almost like a kind of memorial concert for uh, Marco Prey, uh, known as Ops, who was the fan who was who was killed in the Clutha um, disaster. Uh, so they had a they had a, a concert, a gig up at um, up in East Kilbride, which is where he was from. That his family were at and the band played, and it was just this. I mean, it was an amazing thing to see, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of incredibly kind of propulsive, you know, um, exciting ska band, you know, playing these songs and everybody up dancing, and their their awareness that the, one of them was missing, yeah, and that they were kind of um, continuing to to sort of love love the things they love. As a way of kind of honouring his memory, you know. Yeah. So that was that, that was a tremendous thing to see. Um, when we were talking about the grouse shooting and the sex shop, we we're saying how would you get people to um, trust that you're going to do the right thing? And then again, I know you've said you, you, there's a negotiation and there's time taken to get people who are supposed to know you. But I mean, other times when you think, well, I'm not going to, you know, no, I'm not going to. Um, follow this story up because I don't think it's the right thing to do. Or has that ever happened? Um, I don't. Th- I don't think so. I've not really um, tended to. I mean, I've I've never really had much taste for going into situations in the immediate aftermath of tragedy. No, no, I no. mean, I, the the Clutha was different because it was just something about it that just kind of spoke to me. Maybe because I live in Glasgow and it was a Glaswegian thing, and somehow I just felt it. The response to that. Um, accident kind of um, said something about the spirit of the city, so I just kind of felt like I, di- I didn't. I didn't feel like that I had ownership of the story by any means. It's not my story; it's theirs. But I felt like I, I understood the story and was able to kind of contribute something to it. But I, I, I don't. I think I would generally be a bit cautious about intruding into private grief too soon, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, 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 I never really feel. I, I rarely feel that I can't, you know, find some way into a story. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, going back to kind of where we started with with um, uh, after the referendum, as I say, it's three years now. Um, it's interesting that you said that um, the, the the scars, if you like, from that particular vote are still felt today, um, and that's I think. To me, that does feed into the book, you know, this idea that um, it was an unsatisfactory vote for even people on both sides. You know, there was people who perhaps voted no for really good reasons that they, they saw as being good reasons, and there was the people who voted yes who then felt betrayed, and it, it really kind of, you know, divided a nation, and those divisions, you know, are still yet to heal. Um, looking back now on, on Scotland, you know, Today, do you, do you see an improvement in that situation, or do you, do you see? Well, I just I feel that the question just hasn't been answered, has it? You know, mm. I mean, and, you know, and it may not be put again for a long time. Yeah. But th- that is definitely a fault line within the country, depending on you know which way you your your sort of um, allegiances lie. Yeah. Um, I guess even even the now you know you said that. Um, round about the time of the referendum, perhaps continually, it was perhaps more difficult to get people to trust journalists in general. Yeah. Um, do you think that kind of distrust remains? Um, do you think you know the the idea that um, well, I mean, I, I'm thinking now about the way that a lot of people said, well, the, the BBC mm-hmm. did this, you know, they reported it this way. Or from both sides, they would, you know, say, well, you know, um, mm-hmm. they, you were biased in some sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that idea of bias is, is definitely um, very widespread, you know, and I think I would say pretty wrong-headed, actually. Yeah. I mean, certainly in my experience... Um, and my and the experience of colleagues that I know well, whenever we kind of got sent off to do political jobs, we were never once told what to write. Yeah. You know, I certainly wasn't. I know that my, my kind of colleagues weren't. But I think the perception is that you go out in a story with a particular, uh, you know, a, agenda. And certainly there's no doubt that um, in terms of the editorial lines of um, newspapers, they were generally anti-independence. Yeah. Um, but... And the actual reporting, I don't think that was necessarily the case, certainly in every newspaper. But I think that the perception that, um, you know, newspapers are not to be trusted was intensified by that experience. And I think it's just one of the many problems that's fed into what's undoubtedly a crisis in Scottish journalism. I think we can't... Hide the fact that we're we've got some serious problems within the Scottish papers. Is that a crisis in Scottish journalism or is it a crisis in journalism? It's a crisis in journalism, but it's more pronounced in Scotland, where the resources are fewer. So I think um, just in terms of the amount of money that editors have to spend on on uh, on their papers, it's just they've got so little money mm-hmm. um, that it makes it difficult to be creative. Um, in the, in the best sense. Yes, yeah. Um, and to properly resource uh, the kind of storytelling you might want. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that I think that's large... One of the problems there is to do with ownership. I think, you know, the kind of... The people that own uh, the, uh, the, the kind of... The Herald Group and the, and the Scotsman Group are not particularly interested um, 
in words or pictures, which you know I think. <laughs> That's a difficult. Yeah, yeah. Which I think you know is, is obviously a drawback yeah. if you um, if you own newspapers mm-hmm. because you want if you want more people to read them, you need to improve those things. Yeah. And I just don't think there's a great will from the people that own them to um, to to they're, they're interested in kind of. Um, Increasing shareholder dividend. Yeah. They're not interested in telling the stories of Scotland. Uh, you know, mm. and people aren't stupid. If the papers keep getting worse, people are going to, fewer and fewer people are going to buy them. Yeah. Less money is going to come in. It's going to be less attractive to advertisers. It's a vicious circle. Yeah, sure. And I don't really see uh, a way out of it without a change in ownership of those kind of um, quality titles in particular. Yeah. I, th- I still think, I don't think, I wouldn't say we are doomed. Mm-hmm. I think. It could be turned around, but I think it needs money and it needs it needs it needs will. Yeah, there's a lot of great individual writers. Yes, but they just need um, they need they need the money. Um, you know, you said this the passion of Harry Bingo. The chapter was written for Nutmeg Magazine. Are you finding that the kind of journalism that you do, which tends to be long form um, and essay like? it's more difficult to get into newspapers and therefore you're having to look elsewhere? Uh, I would say so, yeah. I mean, um, I don't write very much now for uh, the indigenous Scottish newspapers simply because they don't have freelance budgets and I'm freelance. Yeah, yeah. Um, Harry Bingo, uh, that piece was, was written for Nutmeg um, and, and, and picked up by the Guardian, I'm not sure that the Guardian would have commissioned me to write it because it's quite a hard thing to. It sounds rubbish when you try to explain what it is, um, but it was only because I was able. It was only because I was able, like, That's my problem generally. I think a lot of my stuff just sounds rubbish when I explain what it is, and then once it's actually done, you think, oh, that hopefully people would think that's quite good. Yeah. But um, I was able to show the Guardian the piece, and they they bought it because of that, um, which was good because um, you know I wrote it for Nutmeg without expecting to, to get paid very much money for mm-hmm. it because I wanted to write it. And that's a problem because, mm-hmm. you know, if, you, if, if we want to have good long-form journalism in Scotland, which I presume we do, yeah. we either have to pay properly for it or the people that write it have to be willing or able to write it without being paid properly. And that's not good because no. that means you're not going to have kind of younger people kind of coming into the industry trying to do that stuff. You know, it needs to be people that have got a bit of money behind them or kind of, you know a bit of a reputation or something you know it's harder for kind of people for new blood to kind of break into that yeah absolutely so that, that's a worry for me for sure in terms of just platforms who can produce this sort of work so do you think I mean you said you weren't sure whether you were going to do a second book um, I know this is no time to ask you whether you'd do a third mm. but uh, looking into the future, um, do you think it'd be more difficult to do these these kind of obviously if if you're not getting yeah. you know the work to do, but um, where mm-hmm. do you see the kind of future of, of stuff like this, of books like that? Well, I mean, there's about forty three stories in yeah. this book, and forty two in the previous one. So you're talking about eighty five yeah. um, pieces, which have been chosen from a, a much wider selection of things that I've written. So you need to have quite a big pool of stuff yeah, to be able sure. to kind of choose and select the stuff in the first place. So I, and I, I am still writing um, pieces, but not to the same uh, frequency mm-hmm. as, as, as I kind of was before. So I don't think there would be another book of this sort for me in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure at this point that I would even want to do a third 
um, sort of piece which was a, a kind of collection of stories. Mm-hmm. I think if I do write another book, um, which I hope I will, I'll take one subject and tackle it at book length. Um, but I don't think I'll do another collection. I think two collections. I, I feel like I've kind of said the things that I kind of want to say right. about Scottish cultural life, or, or there's some stuff from England in here as well, yeah. actually. But I've said, I've made those kind of points through the, through the, through the work, and I don't really think I, I think I'd be repeating myself probably if I did the same thing again. Okay. Uh, um, this, these two books together feel like a bit of a, they're enough of a statement. Yeah. Um, they sum up what I've done so far with my working life. Um, and if I write another one, as I say, I think it'll be a, a full-length treatment of some other subjects. But I don't know at this point what that will be. <laughs> well, actually, I think I, I, they do work really well together as a um, as collection of, of the, the your writing. But also, I think, as we said right at the top, of a particular time in Scotland, which um, well, it was unlikely to kind of be repeated again. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not about that, but uh, they kind of bookend that period if it's to be bookended uh, really nicely yeah well people, they, people should definitely buy both I think that's what you're oh, saying oh yes I'm saying they should definitely <laughs> buy both and you know and also buy you know keep looking out for good writers in newspapers and magazines and because you know there is there are still some great writing out there it's just perhaps a bit more difficult to mm. to find mm-hmm. but yeah I, I agree with that totally as I say I think there are some tremendous individual writers within the Scottish papers it's, yes. just, it's just harder for them to, to kind of shine really I think in the current situation um, but, I, but I do hope that um, if these things if these books of mine are read in future like I think you were sort of getting at this there I hope that people would be able to get, arrive at an understanding of what Scotland was like at this particular yeah, over absolutely. these last kind of over the last kind of decade really that they would get a feel for it and who the people were and what the kind of mood in, in the air was well, for take, reading the stories. They take you on journeys to the. You've got these central stories happening, big, big stories in Scotland, obviously, and these take you to the other places and you know, to meet other people. But they're kind of there's links going on all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter, perfect place to leave it. But thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back again soon um, with someone completely different. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Mm-hmm.